This is a photograph, one of my favourite photographs, that I actually took hanging from my hang glider. Now, the reason it's one of my favourites, I was actually, uh, we were getting pretty high here, I was with one of my mates, Gary, who's somewhere in the audience. But we were circling up in a thermal, and uh, this particular day I reached my height record, my personal height record, of 13,000 feet. So, now let me tell you, at 13,000 feet, when you're hanging from just a single strap attached to your back, underneath a kite that weighs about a third of your body weight, looking around, it's incredibly comforting to have something packed right about here. And of course it's a parachute. You know, parachute, just knowing it have, it's there gives you this sense of, sense of comfort. But the question I have for you tonight is why is that so? Why would having a parachute actually be a source of comfort? Because you know what, the, the reality is, is that parachutes have some real problems with them. And I want to share with you just three of those tonight. And in fact, these are the same three problems that are shared with lifestyle medicine, which you've heard a lot about already. So let's have a look. What is the first problem with parachutes? Well, here it is. The first problem with parachutes is there's actually no good evidence that they actually work. Well, that's at least according to the most rigorous sort of research methodologies. There is no good evidence that they actually work. And let me just clarify here. In fact, this point was made by, by this article was published in BMJ. And he, he read the title of it. Parachute used to prevent death and major trauma related to gravitational challenge. I like the way that pictures. Gravitational challenge, a systematic review of randomised control trials. Now what these authors actually did is they, they, they scanned the literature and said, well, what randomised control trials, and this is what's considered by you know, the scientific and medical community as good evidence, right? other forms of evidence, and I'll touch on this in a moment, and not sort of considered lesser right. So these guys just looked at randomised control trials, and I'll explain what they look like in just a moment. But this is what they found. We were unable to identify any randomised control trials of the parachute intervention. Now, why is that the case? Well, if you were to conduct, in fact, not just a randomised control trial, but a, a double-blinded randomised control trial, which is considered the gold standard of sort of you know, medical and scientific research. This is what it would look like. You would get some participants who have no idea what's going on, all right? So they're blinded to it. And then you would also get the researchers who may have no idea either. So they've designed the state, and, uh, and then things start to unfold from there. What we do is we give some of the, I suppose you could say, lucky participants a parachute, and we pack it in their back. And then we get the other, the other participants who are, well, not so lucky, and we put something in their backpack that we know isn't going to work. Right? This is the placebo, so we just pack it with a bunch of uh, tissues like that. Then we put them in a plane, we throw them out of the plane, and we see what happens. Now, the researchers there who are blinded to who's got what, they watch on with a great intent, and then they go, oh, well, that's what they mean so well. So, what happened? Here though, in fact, if for it to be a, the, the most rigorous state design, we'd actually have to then do a crossover trial. So what that would involve is the people who got the parachutes the first time now do it again, this time with the tissues, and those who with the tissues first time, if there are any left, actually get to do it with the parachute. And we see how these outcomes um, come out. Obviously, there is a major problem with doing a double-blinded randomised control trial with parachutes, isn't there? But do you know what? There's actually a similar problem with doing double-blinded, randomised control trials when it comes to lifestyle interventions. And here it is, it's pointed out by Thomas here in, uh, in, in this paper. And what he says here is that the current approach to evidence-based medicine 
encourages physicians to ignore any information that does not come from a double-blinded, randomised, controlled trial. Yet, human beings cannot be blinded to a dietary or a lifestyle intervention. You know, people just know what you're feeding them. They know when you're getting to move and be more active. They know when you're administering stress management techniques to them. Now, these are things that people cannot be blinded to. And the researchers know it as well, what I'm feeding people, how I'm getting them to move. And see, now what this creates is a, is a major problem. This is the truth of it. A major problem we have with lifestyle medicine being accepted by mainstream, the mainstream medical community. It's the, the, the type of studies that we can do aren't this gold standard, double-blinded, randomised control crossover design. Very difficult. Now that's not to say there isn't some evidence out there, but it's just genuinely considered as a lower form of evidence. One form of evidence is considered a case study. Now, let's think about parachutes for a moment. Raise your hand if you have jumped out of the plane with a parachute and survived. <laughs> All right, this is a good sign. Okay, um, raise your hand if you've uh, jumped out of a parachute, uh, plane without a parachute and survived. <laughs> no, well, do you know what? There's actually been at least two recorded examples in history of people who have done just that. And this is what we get back. When we actually start to present case studies, the, 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 the pure researchers, the, the, the scientists say, yeah, you know what? It may not have been the intervention. It may not have been the parachute. We can cite examples of people survived without it. And we get the same sort of feedback, the same sort of responses when we present case studies with lifestyle medicine. Some of which are incredibly compelling, though. This is Beverly. Now, here's Beverly, she's 76 years old. She's had um, quadruple bypass surgery. She's got all manner of complaints. And uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Roger Greenlaw, puts her on a program. Within one year, she's off all insulin for, for diabetes. She gets peripheral neuropathy. The feeling comes back into her feet. This is unheard of stuff. Her eyesight actually improves. We've got case studies like this. The, the Darren's. Right, and I'm going to talk about the better looking on the door left at the moment. Don't agree with that, Brett. That's not kind. But, you know, Darren, he's, he's actually in one of, one of our CHIP programs um, in Dora Creek, which is uh, very close to my home. Um, he comes in with essentially a, uh, almost like a lunchbox full of his medications. Right? He's on all manner of stuff for all manner of conditions. Hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, uh, diabetes in the work. What we actually see with him is this incredible transformation in his health. Today, this is 18 months on, Darren's actually on a reduced dose of one medication. But here's the compelling story. This, this is his kidney function. Right? This is glomerular fil filtration, right? Uh, what you don't want to do is fall between below that line. This starts a score of 15. If you do that, you're on dialysis and you're on the, on the kidney transplant list. Normal is about 90. Darren was 22. We put him on this intensive therapeutic lifestyle change program, and you know, after two months, here is his kidney function, 88. Uh, last time I chatted with him, he indicated to me that it actually normalised. Antenna's in the bottom, you're strangling it. I'm strangling your antenna. That's, got, and that's our problem. We've got to stop strangling stuff. <laughs> All right, I'll keep my hand up. I've got it. Thank you. Thank you. So here we have case studies, but what happens is when we try and publish, when we try and document case studies, you know, we get the same sort of pushback. Ah, uh, you know what? That's not a double-blind, randomised controlled trial. It's just a case. It's a one-off. Maybe it was something different. Maybe they changed their underwear. 
you know, and so we get this pushback. So then we do multiple case studies, what we call cohort studies. Here's some data from a study that we published eventually in the American Journal of Cardiology in 2012. This documents the outcomes of over 5,000 participants in our CHIP program. And uh, what you can see, I'll draw your attention, uh, it's a very busy slide obviously, but look at this one here. What we actually had is when on entry to the program, um, of those 5,000, about 10%, 525 people had fasting plasma glucose or blood sugar levels indicative of diabetes. Now I know it's not a diagnosis, but it was indicative of diabetes. After 30 days, one month, 224 of them no, hold, no longer hold that status. You know, so this is, this is to me, significant. You know, this is, to me, is some evidence worth taking notes of. The intriguing thing is we had, uh, we actually had that paper knocked back by one particular journal. The reviewer on that actually said, you know what, you don't have a control group. How do you know it was the intervention that had that effect? Because 224 people spontaneously get better, don't they? You know, we get this constant, uh, constant pushback. So Dean Ornish came along, he's one of the gurus in the, in the lifestyle medicine space. And he said, well, I'm going to do a randomised control trial. I know I can't blind people what, to what I'm doing, but he developed a program. It was called the, the, the um, Lifestyle Heart Trial. And he has four essentially guiding principles. Nutrition, physical activity, social support, because it's true, isolation is a huge issue in loneliness, and then stress management. He puts these people on the program. He actually randomises it. So he has these people. Some go into the, the control group, which just gets receives standard care. And then he has these other group who receive his program. What do they see in the control group? These randomised monkeys, they actually find that indeed their condition progresses. Now he's taking angiograms of these people. He's actually measuring how much clogging of their arteries is present. This is what he finds, however, in his intervention group. Those people who even just did a little bit of what he said, and he has a fairly radical program, they actually had, uh, you can see there's a negative scores, they actually had a reduction in their stenosis. Those people who had who were the most adherent had a, a more significant reduction in the the, the um, in the, the narrowing of their arteries, and so their, their condition was actually being arrested. You know, because he did, it was not double blinded, he got so much pushback, even on this randomised control trial, that it took 13 years for Medicare in the United States to recognise his program as a legitimate program for people who have heart, heart conditions. So you know what, we have this major issue, a problem with parachutes and the same problem with lifestyle medicine is that there's just not good evidence, as is deemed good evidence. There's plenty of other evidence, but good evidence in the form of double-blinded, randomised control trials, and there's never, never going to be. I love the way that Smith and Powell um, actually concluded this. They said, we think that everyone might benefit if the most radical protagonists of evidence-based medicine, this is these double-blinded, randomised control trials, organised and participated in a double-blinded, randomised, placebo-controlled crossover trial of the parachutes. <laughs> so, problem number one. Here is problem number two with parachutes. And that is, they don't work if they ain't big enough. Here's a photo of a friend of ours um, from Newcastle. His name's Adam Parrott. This guy is part bird. He's just an incredibly gifted angler pilot. He, um, he's represented Australia on several occasions. He's an incredible acrobatic aer um, 
you know, aerobatic uh, pilot. And uh, he was in a competition flying along with uh, racing at 7,000 feet with a group of other pilots when the guy in front of him, all of a sudden, his glider tumbled. And Adam actually had to push his bar out to, to go over his tumbling glider. The pilot was thrown from the craft because um, the, the hang strap snapped. And Adam, as he flew over, watched this guy throw his chute. Unfortunately, that guy had, had had a chute that was inadequate in size. And Adam watched this chute actually rip apart and fall. And obviously, this story didn't end well. After that episode, some of the pilots in the hang gliding uh, club at Newcastle got together and they got the commercially available um, parachutes together. They tied weights to the bottom of them. They threw them off a cliff to see what happened. They watched some of the chutes go, and the weights sticking to the ground. And then one of the other parachutes floated down gently and, and lighted like this. And everyone went, oh, one of them once. And so that's exactly what they did. You see, parachutes don't work if they're not big enough. And the same applies to lifestyle medicine. We have studies like this. This is the effect published in BMJ, you can see. Effect of screening and lifestyle counselling on the incidence of a skin heart disease in the general population. And this is what they concluded. And, and, and I blew this word because I highlight, I want to highlight this. The conclusion was that repeated lifestyle intervention over five years had no effect on ischemic heart disease, stroke, or mortality at the population level after 10 years. Bit of a sad story, it's a bit discouraging, isn't it? That repeated lifestyle counselling has essentially no effect. Until you read the methods here. That repeated lifestyle counsel involved three lifestyle counselling sessions that went for between 15 to 45 minutes over a five-year period. <laughs> three sessions. In five years, that's repeated lifestyle counselling. And surprise! It didn't work! Well, that's a tiny parachute. That's a tiny parachute. Well, this one here, weight loss with a low-fat diet. I need to preface this. Most um, really well-developed, well-established lifestyle medicine interventions promote a low-fat eating pattern. The way they do that is they promote a, a whole food plant-based eating pattern, which is an innately low-fat. And so this study actually looked at um, the efficacy of low fat. It concluded that essentially over a two-year uh, follow-up, it has very little effect. It's not very effective to put people on a low-fat diet. Well, that's a bit of a sad story, isn't it? Except when you look a bit more closely at the results. And here you go. These are the people that were in, the, uh, in this, this study. And you can see when they entered the program, this is how much um, total cal energy from uh, fat was, was in their diet, 31%, 31.4. Then over the course of the two years of the study, this is their new radically improved diet. Only 30% fats. Now, on what planet that's low fat, I've got no, I'm not quite, quite certain, but certainly I would expect to see that a 1%, not significant nonetheless, reduction in someone's, you know, percent body fat, uh, percent um, cal calories from fat would have any effect and yet we make conclusions that hey this doesn't work you know what that's a tiny parachute tiny parachute here's a guy however who specializes in really big parachutes in fact huge parachutes I had the pleasure of I've actually met um, Corliss a couple of times this guy was uh, a, is a physician at the Cleveland Clinic 
and uh, which, as you know, or as many of you might be aware, is sort of one of the, the, the leading heart um, uh, hospitals in the world. They develop bypass surgery there, I think stenting as well. But cholecystin, the surgeon there, goes, do you know what? I'm sick of seeing people come through and then come back. Because we put a stent in and then five years later they're back here. And so he said, give me, I want to try something, I want to test something. He, he spoke to his colleagues, he said, give me your inoperable patients. And so he selected 19 of these. He took 19 people and he gave them a massive parachute. What did he do with them? And I, I, should, I need to point out here, of those, those 19 patients, over the five years before they entered his program, they'd sustained 48 cardiac events between them. 48 cardiac events between the, between the 19 of them. And then he said to them, here's the deal. Um, he, did, he, did, he was very supportive of them in his practice, but he said, you guys, I'm going to change your diet, I'm going to change it in a radical way. You, you think 30% is low fat? Because that's the, that's the standard American diet. That's the SAD diet. We could probably do the same for Australia. He said, uh, we're going to actually bring it down. You're going to eat nothing that had a mother or a face. Right? Essentially, you're going to set a whole food, plant-based eating pattern. And in doing that, he actually brought their percent of calories from fat down to about 9%. What did he see? Well... Right, you're right. I love this. I saw this. I found this the other day. This is actually proudly issued by the Lard Information Council in 1970. This is one of our advertisements. They're happy because they eat lard. Well, his patients weren't happy because I tell you what, they weren't eating any lard, at least for the first part of it. But they became really happy because this is just one of the, the, the results of one of his patients. In fact, this was a fellow colleague, one of the other surgeons at the centre, Joe Crow. This was his uh, left uh, anterior descending, you can see here. Three years later, here is the angiogram of that same vessel. Right? Within a matter of months, many of these people had no symptoms of angina. In 12-year follow-up, right? now just get the, take, get the context here, in the five years before entering the program, 48 cardiac events between the, the 19 of them. In the 12-year follow-up, since commencing his intervention, not one further cardiac event. Every single one of them is alive of these inoperable patients and doing well. That's a big parachute. But big parachutes work. So, to conclude, problem one with parachutes and lockstone medicine is there's no good evidence. There's plenty of evidence. It just depends what you deem to be good. Number two, they don't work if they're not big enough. Right, and we need to start thinking very hard. We just published a paper last year out of the centre looking at what's the dosage? Now, how, much, how much do you have to give people? How much support do you have? How many sessions do you have to do with someone to get significant meaningful outcomes? And there's a lot more work that needs to be done in that space. But how big does the parachute need to be? That leads me to my last point, my last problem with parachutes. And that is they don't work if they're not deployed. To conclude, this is Adam once again, the, the original site. In um, 2013, about 18 months ago, Adam was actually doing some aerobatic manoeuvres uh, over the cliffs at Newcastle. And uh, he actually was doing a, a double loop, like coming, you know, these loops, 360 degrees, and, and you're, you know, you're laying down, uh, pulling a lot of Gs, and then another glider, as he was coming out of this loop, flew in front of him. To avoid collision, uh, Adam actually pulled it up even harder, and, there's some debate what actually, what actually happened, but we've seen the video, and some of us feel that probably he pulled too many Gs in order to avoid this collision and passed out. 
And the video shows Adam's glider all of a sudden start to tumble. But obviously because he was unconscious, Adam never deployed his ship. And Adam was actually killed that day. And it was a tragic loss for you know, the whole Anglo community in Australia. But you know what, the point is this, there are thousands and thousands of people in our community today that are falling to their death. And they either don't have parachutes or they're not being shown how to deploy them in the right kind of way. And this is where lifestyle medicine comes in. And this is where, you know, in the lifestyle research sound and what we're doing in, you know, in our courses, we're trying to equip and train and we're passionate about seeing this change. Because you know what? I believe that providing people with parachutes up there and teaching them how to use them can prevent ambulances down here. And so, just to conclude, um, Dean Ornish, one of the gurus of lifestyle medicine, was invited to write an article for Time magazine which was published late last year. And he titled it this, he titled it, It is time for lifestyle medicine. It's time to embrace lifestyle medicine. And, um, and I think, you know, the, the people that have come here tonight, I think many of you are on the page here, so maybe I'm singing to the choir, but, you know, I, I, I truly believe this. We need to see this, this shift in the way that we do health. So it is truly healthcare. So we're not, it's not disease care, it's healthcare. Parachutes up there, far better than ambulances down here. Thank you for listening.